Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. With the coronavirus pandemic spreading throughout the world, the long-term effects are hard to project. Many are starting to question how a global event like this could alter the Asian economy and the balance of power. With me today to ponder these big questions and discuss Asia's response to the pandemic is Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Nick. Good to be back, Matt. So if we can begin with ground zero and talk about China, where the virus originated and has felt the brunt of the effects, they've announced more than 80,000 cases in China, but it's likely to be a lot higher. What can we say about China's situation and what do you think the response has been there? Well, I guess when we're recording, which is... Did that, you want to say the date? Yeah, that might so, be good. So when we're recording, which is the 13th of March... Friday, um, 13th of March, 10.16am. China is in a position where it is pretty confident that it has not just turned the corner, but pretty much seen this virus off. So Xi Jinping took a tour of Wuhan in the past day or two. Mm. He hasn't declared victory, but he's getting pretty close. The economy is getting back to work, moving, travel bans are being lifted... Uh, the infection rate that they are reporting, and we'll come back to talk about the numbers, yeah. is declining every day. And the indicators are, you know, if you look at the fact that the leadership is going out there, now admittedly they're wearing masks when they're Wuhan, mm. um, A, that they're getting out there, B, that the travel restrictions are being lifted, and C, that the economy is beginning to get moving again, says that this they see this thing as largely over. Now, there's a lot of skepticism about the numbers, and it's perfectly understandable because there are many reasons for China to fib about the numbers. Um, yeah. You've got to take these things with a grain of salt from an authoritarian government that does a good line in propaganda and manipulation, and it really doesn't pay too much kind of back and forth. Was it 80,000? Was it 100,000? What, mm-hmm. what is it? Clearly, they had a very big and significant outbreak. They appear to have contained it and corralled it, and the government feels confident to let the economy move again. Now, whether that's because they feel like they ought to, which I think is a sort of slightly cynical take, you know, the reason they contain Wuhan travel bans and all these sorts of things on and really clamped down on that city, in fact, many other cities, was to stop the spread and we don't have the health system completely overwhelmed by sick people. They built basically triage hospitals in Wuhan in matters of days. They're dismantling these. Clearly, the surge in cases is is not there anymore. Mm. Um, we don't know, and it will probably be years before we really know, we may never know really what the, the scale of the outbreak is. But based on the statistics that are being reported, China had that little under 81,000 cases reported, which is by far the largest number globally. Although every day at the moment as it's spreading in, particularly as it's spreading rapidly in Europe and North America, particularly in the US, the gap between the rest of the world and China is narrowing. Two days ago, China was two-thirds of the world's cases. Mm. Today, it's probably about half, and probably in about two or three days' time, it'll be less than half, and we'll go on from there. It really depends on whether the rest of the world can contain it in the way that China did. So the cynical side of me looks at China reopening the factories tentatively and uh, lifting flight bans and slowly starting to relax things a bit as being not so much confidence that they've beat the virus because a virus like this can always research, of course, as soon as you get complacent, but more so that they need to say that they're winning against the virus and 
their economy needs to open back up because they've now been shut down for ostensibly more than two months since you know Chinese New Year, essentially. Yeah, well, there's no question that there's an enormous amount at stake for the party mm. in particular, Xi Jinping, but 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 for society more generally, for for them to knock this one on the head. It's always good to be cynical about what the Chinese leadership is doing, but I think that a cynical public relations exercise would be unbelievably risky in the current context. Mm. I think, based on their actions, they think they've they've got this one nailed. Now, they could be wrong. Judging them by what they are doing, they feel that they're confident enough to get the ball rolling again. Now, what may be interesting to watch is whether they've come out too soon. Mm. You know, and again, we just don't know. Um, certainly based on the stats, you'd say yes, because if you look at the reported infections they've really tapered right off and you'd say okay you, you've and you look at any inf- influenza outbreak and you know all of us have become kind of 90 second epidemiologists but if you look at charts of virus breakouts whether it's SARS whether it's seasonal flu they all peak and recede yes there is a turning point and based on the stats that the Chinese are reporting they've clearly reached that only time will tell whether that's true but it stands to reason that they've done it and certainly what they have undertaken is a, a super draconian version of how you combat a disease, which is you contain it, you restrict movement, mm. put super tight constraints on people interacting with each other to reduce the speed and scale with which the infection spreads. You can then manage the caseload and the infection rate up to the point, and then then you've just got a, a small residual bit that, as you said, will always be there, but you can manage it. Mm-hmm. It was the kind of response, really, that I think you could only do in a country like China if any other country is dealing with an epidemic on that kind of scale. Well, certainly authoritarian countries have a distinct advantage on this one. So you, you, know, you combine... <laughs> it's, it's not often that you hear the pro-authoritarian <laughs> argument. <laughs> yeah, no, but just practically speaking. Yes. Uh, I mean, and there's, there's a couple of things also beyond just, you know, you've got a party state that has unbelievably high-tech surveillance system to keep an eye on people mm. that is used to ordering people around with you, facial recognition yeah, to, yeah and yeah. you've got a population that is used to being ordered around and that will follow directions and knows that if you don't follow directions there will be very severe consequences mm-hmm. they do not have the sense of this is infringing in my basic civil liberties because there aren't any um, at least of the kind that western liberal democracies value if you sit down and do the who's going to be able to manage this one best, is it America or China going to win better over the virus? You'd say China's got some structural advantages in managing this sort of thing. And that matters to some people, yeah. Yeah, no, no. And yeah. as this thing comes out, and we'll be looking at who dealt with it best and, and the sort of politics of who, who dealt with it best will be front and centre. Um, and the Chinese are already crowing and they're putting out a pretty su- significant propaganda effort, both subtle and not so subtle, Mm. saying that the Chinese model has been vindicated as a means of managing big, challenging crises of our time. Mm. You know? mm. And their old line about democracy being corrupt, decadent, incompetent, incapable of managing big, complex societies, they'll say, yeah, look, you know, there's just more evidence of the superiority of the Chinese system. And it was a very uh, smooth move to... I think yesterday they sent medics to Italy. Did you see that? Oh, there's all sorts of stuff. There's medics to Italy. There's yeah. face masks to Korea. The soft power diplomacy stuff it's is not, it's not is, soft. Well, actually, it's <laughs> very firm, but it, but you know the 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 very and it's a very calculated effort to not only we want to help, 
but to say we're going to help you as a political exercise yeah, and yeah. very publicly you, know, you don't have to let anyone know this is happening but they're letting everyone know it's happening we've got the situation so under control that we're now in the position yeah. that we can help others yeah. And in- yeah. interestingly yeah. though if you look at East Asia as a whole now we don't know about Indonesia because the reporting there is is pretty grim most people suspect it's much higher than is being reported but mm-hmm. East Asia as a whole has responded to this thing really, really well. I mean, China obviously was the big outbreak and it's, it appears to be under control there. South Korea was the second biggest outbreak globally until pretty recently. It seems to have reached a maximum point. The South Korean government has managed this extremely well. They've tested vast quantities of the population, lots of you know quarantine measures and restrictions on travel. Two cities were basically locked down. Uh, there's a few little clusters breaking out in, in Seoul and a few other places. But on the whole, mm. if, you, if you step back from it, if you think about that graph with the spike, it's leveled out now. And the same is true in Singapore. Both Singapore and Korea, these are highly globalized societies with people coming and going very tightly plugged into China. Mm. Um, and yet their capacity to manage it was really a function of their authoritarian tendencies of their government. Um, Singapore seemed pretty strict at closing the borders yeah. as much as they could. I, I saw videos that said, you know, if you have a fever, you can't get in. Business travelers and others saying, I was being tested for my temperature 15 times a day. You go into your hotel, you're tested In and out of the building, you're yeah. getting tested. So they learned the lesson of SARS from 2002, 2003. They had a playbook and in best Singaporean traditions, the mm. first moment of a disease, out comes the playbook. Mm. And they pulled the military in to, you know, yeah. pack all the, all the face masks and were giving them freely yeah. out to households. And, yeah, and they a- had, I remember seeing this great chart on, yeah. online somewhere where they had 100, I can't remember the number, let's say it's 125 cases. And they had worked out every single one of them, not just who they were and what they had, but where they had gotten it from. Yeah. Barring like two cases. And so they could write, we can corral this, though all those people were in lockdown. Mm, um, wow, yeah. And again, you know, it's a combination of technocratic government with authoritarian political powers, a society that's very accepting of that and will follow those instructions and do what they're told mm-hmm. um, and see that this is a good thing and not resist it and not, not follow the rules. Compliant. Uh, yeah, compliant. That's yeah. exactly right. And it seems to work so that if you're a liberal democracy, particularly if you're a federal that cherishes freedom of movement and free expression it's like, oh, you know, there's going to be some challenges in front of places like Australia, the US and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So what's going on around the Asian region that our listeners mightn't know about? I mean, I know a lot of our listeners are very well plugged into events, but you say that we don't have a good idea about what's going on in Indonesia. I read somewhere that Duterte is being tested or has been tested for coronavirus quite recently. And we've had big outbreaks in China and South Korea. But what about in between those is a yeah. significant hunger land called North Korea. The Korea watchers think that the real coronavirus disaster is going to be in North Korea because you've got a combination of a, a society that's pretty tightly linked to China, um, China mm. a terrible public health system. I mean, a re- I mean, this is a poor country, properly, Division One, Grade A, underdeveloped uh, country with wildly inadequate healthcare system. Yeah, if you get a large population centre with a massive outbreak, it is not going to be able to cope. Yeah, Yes, you have an authoritarian government that could, if it were, so minded, but it doesn't have any of the technocratic capacity. It doesn't have the level of medical technology, and it's also shutting itself off to any assistance from outside. But we won't know. I mean, that's the thing. We just won't know what the reality of the North Korea situation will be for a long while without being too callous about it. Unlike most of the rest of the world, where 
the pandemic has been a problem of globalization and interaction. So that's to say, you know, look in Australia, the cases at the moment are all either directly from someone who's from abroad mm -hmm. or someone who's interacted with someone from abroad. That doesn't occur in North Korea. It will be a, a very North Korean tragedy, but it will be, a, you know, one suspects it's likely to be pretty grim up there. Mm. Elsewhere, as I was saying before, the most reliable stats, if you look at East Asia, you know, it's huge, you know, China dominates, Korea dominates, Japan's pretty big. Other parts of Asia are worryingly small. Yeah, I wondered about that. So the Philippines has had some cases. Pretty sure the first death outside China occurred in Manila, mm. and it was a, someone who'd come from Wuhan. But the dot is very small. There's virtually no dot in Indonesia, and no one believes that. And it's lack of testing. So yeah. what, what they're reporting is government figures about positive tests. Yes. Yeah. So if you don't test, you don't know. And that's, that's the thing with the United States that is, seems to be very disconcerting is, so the numbers of positive results for a country of its size seem to be pretty small. Don't worry about it. Mm. But then you look at the very, very small number of people they've tested given the scale of that population. And that's the bit that makes everyone go, oof. The US could be like Iran, getting yeah. to 10,000 yeah. cases pretty quickly. Also, a lot of Australia's cases, which, as you say, are either people coming from overseas or have had close contact with people from coming overseas, have been from planes that have come from Los Angeles, yeah, but, in Victoria especially. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the majority of the cases in Victoria seem to yeah. be that. You know, if you looked at, there was a, a thing going around on Twitter last night, essentially saying, here are all the positive tests and where in public these people have been. Mm. There's a few blanks, but a very large number of, you know, QF-94 from LA or mm -hmm. the Virgin flight mm -hmm. from LA or the United flight from Chicago or, you know, where yeah. they're coming and, or, from. And, or Tom Hanks. And Tom Hanks. He's been spreading it on the Gold Coast. I'm completely fine with us keeping him, though. <laughs> He's probably safer here. <laughs> he probably is. <laughs> we'll give him a volleyball. He'll be fine in isolation. <laughs> I'll leave that right there. <laughs> Let's segue then. What do you think about the Australian response to this? Have we been a bit more blasé than we should be? I mean, I know there's a lot of public panic buying at the moment on certain paper products and pasta and what have you, but the government hasn't been moving as of 10.33 a.m. on Friday, 13th of March to, you know, shut down major events. Our Prime Minister publicly said he's going to the footy this weekend. Yeah, I, I have to say, look, I'm not a... I realise... Specialist geopolitics of the region. We are, so. we are part of Asia, so... Yeah. Um, <laughs> my sense is that the Australian government is trying to do two things at once, which is have a very significant technocratic response going on quietly in the background mm -hmm. and in public put on a keep calm, carry on, things mm. are okay here. To date, the, the positive tests are actually pretty low. You know, I think we're in the 120-something at the moment not growing exponentially yet. One suspects that's probably not going to last long. The outbreak in, in Australia is pretty small and manageable with certain measures around you know, social distancing and things like that in the short to medium term. What's interesting, I think, is that there does seem to be slightly different approaches between the states. Yeah. So the, the Victorian government is, seems to be going out a bit harder than the federal government and, and the New South Wales government and the Queensland government, but we'll wait and see. It's very hard to judge seeing this from just one point of view here in Melbourne that you you, know, you don't see what's going on behind the scenes in Canberra and in Spring Street in the city and all the prep that's going on. We saw a huge budgetary stimulus package put forward yesterday by the federal government that says we think this event is going to have a very significant effect on the economy. We think it's going to have the kind of contraction 
that the global financial crisis had in 2008, and we are going to give people money to spend. The question is how long this lasts and whether that stimulus works. But it looks to me like they're doing what they should be doing. Mm. Um, it's always a difficult balance to strike because what you don't want to do is frighten the horses too early or unnecessarily. I mean, we've already seen with the panic buying around toilet paper and pasta and the like. I mean, my, my local supermarket was funny. They ran out of toilet paper. Pasta aisle was pretty heavily picked over, except for the whole wheat and the gluten-free, and that was all there. <laughs> so things aren't desperate enough that people buy whole wheat pasta just yet. All right, I um, had to go to three supermarkets to find nappies in the right size. Yeah. So it's just, yeah. that's now when there is no objective reason to yes, think that any no. of these things, and even if we all get sent home, you're not in quarantine, but you can't congregate in these large numbers for two weeks, let's say. Even if that were to happen, the economy would still continue to function. You mm -hmm. don't need to buy these things, and yet people are doing it. So there's a lot of anxiety in the mind, and I think that's partly just the nature of what this thing is. But also don't forget what's, what's come before. You know, we had a summer of bushfires, then we had floods and hail, and you know, it's, this feels like, okay, we're on to the third... A third it's, of the, it's March, yeah, yeah. So here, here we go. Yeah. Yeah, what, yeah. How long until the frogs start falling from the sky well, well, and the, the locust the, plague? Let me just check the April schedule. <laughs> yeah. Can we turn 2020 off and on again? Yeah. I think that's the point that's, that we're at now. <laughs> it, it feels a bit like so. So people are pretty fragile, I think. And so the government's got to convey that we want you to keep going. We mm. don't want you to stop shopping and going out and doing things like that. That's not necessary. We will tell you when it is and we'll take the steps that are appropriate to where that is. And you've got to do that in a way that says that's serious and significant and do it, mm -hmm. a la China, without having the preppers all go, yeah, 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 we were right. You know, the end of the world is nigh and I've finally got a use for my bunker and my six-month supply of tin food. Yes, yeah. Well, can I then again segue on top of this and go, we are working at a university. We are sitting in one now in a, in a basement recording studio with an obligation to a large community of international students. How do you think the university community is responding to this event. And I think that we should say, because it's public knowledge, we had a, a case of COVID-19 positive yesterday in one of our students. Yeah, so here at La Trobe had a student, um, currently enrolled student, tested positive. We found that out yesterday from the Department of Health. And, you know, not surprisingly, the student body and the staff are a bit, a bit unsettled by that. But I think at the whole, so far, you know, we walked through a, a well-populated campus this morning. So things are continuing as normal. Government said there's no need to shut down based on the circumstances. A number of staff and students have had to self-isolate. But so far, it doesn't seem to have transmitted to anyone yet. Australian universities, when they've looked at and, and responded to the virus, it's been in a couple of phases. So the first phase was when it was in China. And we looked at this and thought about it purely basically as a China problem. Yeah. And when the government put the ban on travel from China... That affected our that students. That affected mm. our students dramatically. So all of a sudden, a very significant number of students enrolled in Australian universities couldn't come and do the thing that they have wanted to do and are paying good money to do. So we had to figure out how do we cater to them. The big challenge is we didn't know when they were going to be able to come. If we, if we knew it was just right... They're missing for two weeks, but they'll be here in the third week. Mm. So it was like, is it going to be one week? Will it be two weeks? Will they show up at all? Will, you know, so there was all of this kind of thing. And it, and it also through from many universities um, put a significant financial strain because these students provide a very large chunk of university revenue. And some of the big institutions like the University of Sydney or UTS have something like 30 to 40% of their student cohort full yeah. stop yeah. from the PRC. So... 
But so we looked at it as purely kind of an external problem. You know, yes, we had obligations to our students and how do we manage all of this, but it was... But how do you deliver online teaching to China yeah, with and, all the and restrictions? It was, and it was, it was pl- and, practical stuff. And, and things like the Chinese government doesn't recognize online teaching. Mm. For a degree to be recognized by the PRC government, it has to be face-to-face classroom, traditional classroom teaching. So it's all that complexity. So the Chinese students are saying, hang on, if I get too much online, government's not going to recognize it. A lot of universities um, and lecturers use platforms for coursework material that's not available in China. So a lot of people use YouTube videos. Hey, if you want to understand this puzzle, there's this little video on YouTube that will explain this particular formula. And, you, and it's, yeah. you know, there's lots of stuff like that. All of that's off. You know, mm. So there was an enormous amount of complexity, but it was ultimately just an offshore problem. The second phase, which we're kind of in now, is our students are now contracting it or at risk or they have relatives who are contracting it or mm. things. So it's a, this is an issue now, the virus is here. And what are we going to do and how are we going to manage it and how are we going to cope? So the student who tested positive, how do we provide for that student who's can't come to class for two weeks? Things like that. Yeah. And then the third phase, which we're not yet at, but we're probably not too far from, is are we going to have to close? Mm. And this will come essentially when the state government or the federal government says to keep the rates of infection down, we are closing schools for X days. We are closing universities for X period of time. Yeah. So then we have to figure out what we do then for our students, regardless of where they're from, whether they're international or domestic. It's very hard to look into a crystal ball and know what's going to be the outcome of this. But do you think that there will be an alter in a balance of power at all, not just in the region, in the Asian region, but this is something that has weakened China to a certain extent, although it's very eager to show that this is something that it's going to quickly recover from. And we don't know what this is going to do to the US. It is very, very difficult to tell. If China is right, let's say, if it has turned the corner on this one and has contained this within basically a quarter of economic growth and is able to get the machine running again roughly as it was in the past, it will seek to and is likely to achieve a pretty significant propaganda win Mm -hmm. globally and will limit any relative damage to itself in that sort of shifting balance of power geopolitical contest with the US And if the American response remains this patchy, uneven, poorly coordinated mess that it is at the moment, it may not remain, but it seems pretty lumpy and it seems as if there isn't a recognition yet at the pointy end of the American government that this is a proper crisis that they're facing, that this is the biggest crisis that they're facing Mm. since 2008, then this is something that could significantly shift not just the sort of perception game, That is, that China's nudging ahead and is performing better. And when faced with big problems, it solves them better than the US does. But it could materially affect things. Every day we see the stock market plunging in ways that it hasn't since 2007, 2008. And that will be very significant for the American economy. Mm. Um, What we've seen already has been the politics of the crisis overlaying attempts to manage the crisis. So if you if you look back to SARS 2002, 2003, most recent analog to this, now it was a very different geopolitical environment, but politics stopped and everyone just worked together to, to contain and, and the information sharing, international collaboration that occurred in a six to eight week period was more than had happened in 15 years prior or 10 years after that. This has not occurred this time around. Mm. The level of mistrust and discontent between the key powers is very acute. It's also striking, I mean, I've been quite disappointed from the Australian government's point of view, is that when we Western countries have talked about the China crisis, 
we haven't spoken about the tragedy of facing the Chinese people. It's just been, you guys have caused a problem and you're not allowed to come here. Why hasn't Scott Morrison said to our number one training partner, we are terribly sorry for and feel greatly for the welfare of your people? And there's a playbook on this. You know, our fight is not with the Russian people. Our fight is with the Soviet government. Same thing, you know. What we don't like is the CCP and the, the PRC government, but we can be hugely empathetic to the population as a whole. And that isn't happening. This geopolitical mistrust and competition is now kind of baked into how we interact. And then, you know, you see the US politicians saying, oh, it's the Wuhan virus. It's the Chinese coronavirus. Yeah, Um, Trump was saying it's come from foreign places. Yeah, Yeah. it's very much being described as the Wuhan coronavirus Mm. or the Chinese coronavirus. Now, of course, the Chinese are returning serve by referring to this as the Italy virus, the Iran virus, (laughs) the Japan virus. They'll probably call it the US virus. Maybe they'll call it the Trump virus just to get under his skin. Mm. But I think what we've got here is just another front in the geopolitical competition when one might have looked at it and thought, this is the kind of shock that gets us to think, hang on, this geopolitical competition is stupid. We're all human beings. We need to work together to save people's lives. And that confirms my sense that we're in a really significant period of geopolitical competition and that it's one that, you know, hard to tell how this one is exactly going to play out. But I think if you're sitting there going, this is going to puncture China's tyres and that's a good thing, one probably needs to take a a second look at it. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks very much for your time today and thanks for the regional update there. And... um Best of luck finding toilet paper. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm going to go and hang out with Tom Hanks myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, shall, I shall be a hunting all weekend, I suspect. Mm. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If I can also give a, a shout out to the Corona cast from ABC, and it's definitely required listening for these sort of topics. If you'd like to follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter, we are at La Trobe, Asia. You can follow Nick Bisley. He is at Nick Bisley. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>